This reading is from John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him, because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy the bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Eight months' wages would not buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Make the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in the place, and then men sat down, about 5,000 of them. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them all, filled twelve baskets with the pieces of bread, loaves left over from those that had eaten. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come to make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Okay, I'd like to start by telling you a couple of stories. And I'm going to get my laptop uh, going here onto the screen. Hopefully it works. So, to start, I want to ask you a question. Pretty tough question. Some of you younger lads, no, no, you should get it. You should be okay. All right, you ready? What is this? A pen. We have some geniuses here tonight. We have some geniuses. This is a pen. There's nothing very special about a pen. Nothing very unique about it. You've got pens probably maybe in your pocket. Maybe you've got one sitting in front of you. You carry a pen nearly every day. But I'd love to just start by telling you a story where this here um, actually comes in quite handy. So does anybody recognize these two fellas? Who's that? Neil Armstrong. And who's the other fella? Buzz not Buzz Lightyear, but Buzz Aldrin. <laughs> I typed that in wrong as well when I went to Google. I was like, I'm looking for a photo of Buzz Lightyear. I couldn't understand why it was always a cartoon. Anyway, so we've got Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong here. And these guys are famous for being the first people to ever walk on the moon, the first people to ever land on the moon, the first people to have a successful mission to the moon and back. But it almost didn't go all so well. It wasn't all smooth sailing. Because basically, if you ever get a chance to read um, one, of these, one of their books, both Buzz and Neil have a book, and in their, in their books, it talks about this occasion where they landed on the moon, and they were ready to go, they were ready to go walking on the moon, and they were getting all the gear on it. And as you understand, the gear to be a spaceman, it's, it's a lot, it's a big, huge suit, massive big suit, so they're getting this on, but it's in a tiny, cramped little space. And so anyway, they walk out, they walk into the moon, and amazing time, you know, it's big moment in history, they come back, they're probably debriefing a little bit about it, 
and they notice something sitting on the ground. They notice, and this is a true story, they notice a little switch sitting on the ground, and they thought, that, I, don't, I don't think that's meant to be there, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that in a minute. Anyway, so they, they got themselves, you know, the suits off, and then they looked a little bit more at this here and thought, what is this here? And I want to get these details right, so I'll just check. It was a circuit breaker switch had gotten bumped. I don't entirely know what a circuit breaker switch is, lads, so don't worry, I'm with you. But it had got bumped and it had fallen off. And basically, what this meant was the switch that they, that they needed to turn the engines on so that they could leave the moon and come back to Earth had broken. So they then found themselves in big trouble. And they radioed back to Earth and they said, listen, guys, we have a bit of a problem. Maybe they said, Roger, we have a problem. I don't know. I like to think they did. And they said, we, we are in big, big diffs here. We have no way to get off the moon. I need you to help us. So obviously the guys back on Earth, they went and they were researching everything, trying to think, what can we do to fix this here? What can we do? And they couldn't come up with anything. Neil and Buzz, they went and said, right, we need to catch some sleep in the morning. We need to leave. We need to be making sure that we are not staying on the moon forever. I need to get back to the Earth, back to my life. They woke up the next morning and there was still no plan made. There was no plan made. Now, in this little part of the, of the, of the spaceship where the, the button had broken off, they needed to put something into that there. It was an electronic part of the, of, the, of the spaceship. They needed to put something in that was going to act as a switch. And Neil Armstrong, in his pocket, he found a felt-tip pen. And into this little tiny switch, he pushed the pen in, wriggled it around, held it in as tight as he could for, uh, for a few times, flicked the switch, and all of a sudden, the engines started again. Now, I do not know the ins and outs of how that worked, but I know that it worked, and it's a true story. Now, this pen is just a tiny little pen. Nothing important about a pen, but in their story, it was pretty significant, wasn't it? Without that little pen, they wouldn't have got off the moon. They would have been stuck there. So that's our story number one. Story number two. Here we have a lovely couple wearing a nice suit and a nice dress, but can anybody tell me what is it that is so special about this suit and this dress? I'm not sure if you can see from there, but maybe you've heard about it before. Any ideas? Yeah? It actually is waterproof, you're right. But there's a little detail above that that I always want to highlight. These, the suit and this dress are made out of duct tape. They're made out of duct tape and they look pretty good. There's actually a competition in America for people who go and these, make these suits and these dresses out of duct tape. And you know, they see who has, has the best and it's all, oh, you know, there's awards and everything, it's great. But there is an amazing story behind duct tape and where duct tape came from. You probably think, this is very boring. You're talking to me from the front about duct tape, Ruben. What are you doing here? Just hold, hold with me. There was a lady called Vesta Stoud, S-T-O-U-D-T. Vesta Stoud, she was a mother of two sons who were serving in the Navy back in World War II. Now, Vesta wanted to help out in the war effort as well, so she worked in an ordnance plant in Illinois. And her job there was packaging cartridges that were used to launch rifle grenades. They were packaged 11 to a canister and they were sealed with wax and then they were laced with a paper tape and on the edge of the paper tape was a little tab that you could pull and it would break the wax and it would open up the canister and they could get what they needed. The soldiers could get what they needed. 
But what was happening out on the front lines were basically some of the soldiers would be trying to pull this little tab to break the seal, to break the wax, but it, it wasn't happening. The little tab was breaking off and the wax wasn't breaking and they were left trying to scrape it open with their nails and this was right on the front line. So this was life or death. This was really, really important. Now Vesta Stout, she had two sons in the Navy and she knew that actually this here was a, a matter of life and death. So Vesta was the first person to come up with a brand new type of ceiling, a, a, a paper-based ceiling um, that was, had little bits of paper throughout it, and it was called duct tape. Now, she passed this on to the guys uh, in the war effort, and she said, listen, we need, to, we need to swap the wax. We need to swap it for duct tape. The guys said, listen, no, we don't really want to hear it. We're just pushing on with what we're doing now. You keep doing what you're doing. Keep your head down, please. But she knew that this was more important. This was life or death. So she sent a letter to the, to the top, right to the very top. She wrote a letter to the president, to Franklin Roosevelt, who also was the father of two sons who were serving in the war at that time. She then got a response from the president, thanking her for what she had done. And then not so long later, she got a response from the guys in the war production board. And they enlisted a company called Johnson & Johnson to make the very first duct tape. And then that was used for these canisters. And as a result of that, it saved thousands and thousands, if not millions of lives. So many lives saved by this stuff. So I've just told you two stories about a pen, about duct tape. Nothing significant about a pen in our day-to-day -day lives. Nothing significant about duct tape in our day-to-day -day lives. They're very insignificant items, couldn't we say? but yet they were used to do something great. The pen was used to make a successful moon landing and a successful mission that we still hear about and are taught about in school today. And the duct tape was used to save thousands of lives. So we're hearing a story tonight about, uh, we're hearing a story about the feeding of the 5,000. So boys, put your hands up if you've ever been on an expedition, if you've ever been out on a big walk, or maybe just even for a day with your parents in the morns or anything like that. Yeah, okay, lots of us have been out before. When you go on a big walk, you always want to pack a bag, don't you? You want to pack a bag and make sure you've got enough things with you. Maybe you put your coat, you put a hat, some sun cream if you're maybe walking not in Northern Ireland. And then what do you do? You put some pack lunch, don't you? You put in there some food, maybe a few snacks or whatever it may be. Well, these guys in this story had been out following Jesus and there were thousands of people there. We know that there were 5,000 men at least following Jesus, hearing his stories, watching what he might do. But we read in the story as well that these people hadn't brought any food. Maybe they hadn't expected to be out for the whole day. So they found themselves in a bit of a predicament. Now, imagine this. Just, just imagine for me for a wee second here. I need, you need you to just think. Imagine somebody bursts in the back and says, Reuben, Reuben, I'm really sorry, but... Something bad's happened. You're all now locked into the church. You're locked in. We, we broke the key and we can't, we can't get it fixed. You're locked in. And we've phoned the lock keeper. Don't worry. He's going to come and he's going to sort it all out. But he can't come until tomorrow night. So you're stuck in here for 24 hours. And the other bad news is, is that I've eaten all the tuck shop in the back. Okay? So then somebody pipes up and says, Reuben, don't worry. I've got two fish. And I have five loaves. Now, here is six loaves, so you need to be creative and take one of these loaves away, okay? <laughs> five loaves and two fish. What are you going to say to that? You're going to say, 
thanks very much, mate, for the generosity, but are you serious? Five, there are probably, let's see, there's probably, I reckon, well, there's well over 100 here this evening at least. Five loaves and two, uh, sorry, five loaves and two fish are never going to be enough for a crowd like this, never mind a crowd of over 5,000 people. Yet what we see in this story is the boy give of his five loaves and give of his two fish, and Jesus does something great. Jesus takes something that actually, at the time, people probably thought, that's pretty insignificant. You know what? That's actually just not enough. What you have to offer there, it's good, but it's not that good. Jesus takes that little amount and he does something great. And boys, there's just something about God in that he works that way very, very often when we read the Bible. He takes something small and uses it to do something great. You probably all know the story of Jesus being born. We hear that story at Christmas time. Jesus is born in this stable. Back then, they thought that Jesus was meant to be born into like a palace, that he was going to be a rich ruler, that he was going to be somebody who was going to come and, and just change, change the world right then and there, probably with force. He was going to be a king who had a crown on his head. But in the story, we see something different. We see a baby born in a manger, in a stable, in a smelly, rotten place, in a place that was just insignificant, that was nothing special. But when we know the full story, we know that that moment was used to do something incredible, something life-changing, game-changing, world-changing, history-changing. God used that. You maybe know the story of David and Goliath as well. Put your hands up if you know the story of David and Goliath. Happy days. So loads of you have heard of that before. What do we see? We see David kill this mighty warrior, this mighty giant who nobody would go out and fight. We see David go out and kill him using what? Was he using a big sword or a big spear? What did he use? Yeah. He used stones and a slingshot. Tiny little stones and a slingshot. Yet it slayed the greatest of warriors. What else have we got? We've got actual David and Goliath himself. You know, we can look at the stone and the slingshot, but then if we just take a step back and actually just look at David himself, David was a shepherd boy. Nothing special about David. He was the youngest brother, the smallest one, probably the, the weakest of the brothers at the time. And he's coming forward to, to fight this, this giant warrior. And everybody's saying, are you serious? Mate, no, you go back. You're a shepherd. Go look after your sheep. We'll do the, we'll do the big boy stuff, okay? Yet God used him to defeat the giant and to go on and lead the Israelite people and be one of the greatest kings, a king after God's own heart. And then we've got Moses as well. Now Moses, we've got this great story of Moses who led thousands and thousands of slaves out of Egypt. One man, one man, he wasn't an amazing uh, military character. He wasn't the sort of guy who had a full army behind him. He was one man and yet God took him and his situation, the situation that he was in in that moment, and he said, I'm going to use you to do something great in my story. I'm going to use you to do something great in my story. And then there's one last little thing as well, I think is just something that God uses in a great, great way, but yet maybe at face value to the world outside looks like something quite insignificant. The Bible 
So here in this building, we value this. We value this book above, above all else. It's the Word of God. But once you step outside of, of this building, it won't be long before you bump into somebody who would look at this book and say, that's just words on a page. That's paper bound together, maybe by leather. There's a bit of history there. It's a book. But yeah, what do we know? What do we know? We know this is the Word of God. This is the truth. And that actually this truth has the power to set you and I free from sin and to put us in the right relationship between us and our Father in heaven. It's small, yeah. It can sit in the palm of my hand. You've maybe got a Bible that's small if it can fit in your back pocket, or maybe you have it on your phone and you can carry it around with you everywhere. But in the words of this text is the power to set you free from your sin and to live in right relationship with the Father in heaven. And it's the same in this story, guys. We see five loaves and two fish being used for something incredible to feed this mass, mass crowd of people. But there's something very important in this story, and I think we just need to zone in it for one wee second. It's the fact that the boy gives. He has his five loaves and his two fish, and he probably sees that everybody else doesn't have much, and he's probably sitting thinking, at least I'm all right. Well, maybe that's how I would be thinking. I'd be thinking, unlucky the rest of the guys. At least I've got my five loaves and my two fish. I'm sorted. Maybe he thought, I want to cling to this year. But no, he didn't think that. Because we, we read the story, and what do we see? We see the boy gives freely of what he has. He gives freely of what he has, even though he probably knows, actually, this isn't really enough. And this sort of got me thinking, guys, I wonder when you look at your life, and when you think about yourself and who you are, do you ever think, what have I got to give? What have I really got to offer that's going to make a big difference for God? But you see, guys, God is in the business of taking something small and using it to do something great in his story. And we have so much that we can give him. You've got the relationships with those around you. You've got your possessions. You've maybe got some finances, some money. We've got our jobs. We've got those around us. We can give of our time and we can give that over to God and just watch how God uses that to do something significant in his story. So we question just for you to think about. There's another passage in the Bible as well, which I just wanted to turn to. And with this, we'll, we'll be closing very, very shortly. I don't want to keep us too long. And it's looking at a, a fella in the Bible who a lot of us probably haven't heard about before. I certainly hadn't heard of him. Um, and I wonder if any of you have. Put your hand up if you've heard of, of this guy. Onesimus. Brilliant. We've got a couple, but not too many. We don't have too many. If you do me a favor, open your Bibles, if you've got one in front of you, to Colossians chapter 4. It's on page 1185 in the church Bibles there.
I just want to read to us very, very briefly um, the last wee part. It says the final greetings. Now, this is often where we sort of maybe flick on to the next book or maybe where we sort of wrap up and think, you know, time, time to, to study something new or to look at something else. Well, at least that's what I tend to end up doing as well because often this little part of the passage, we get maybe a lot of names or a lot of little final wee things that maybe it's just not at the meat of the book, not at the meat of what uh, the, the message has been about. But I guess this part of the talk might just be pitched for, for the parents a little bit as well. But boys, the message is exactly the same here. So just wait till we see. So from verse 7, it says this. It says, Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you, they will tell you everything that is happening here. So that's the first time we hear about this guy, Onesimus. And what do we hear about him? Not a whole lot. But we do hear this. We do hear that he is a faithful and dear brother who is one of you. Now, this book is being written to the church in Colossae. And basically, at the time, there, were, there, was, there was a bit of a theological drift going on. And Paul is writing this letter to the church um, to try and correct them on this here. So we know that, that Onesimus is from Colossae. So do me a favor, flick over to pages um, 1200, and you'll find the book Philemon. Now, you may not have heard too many sermons or too many series preached on, on the book of Philemon because it's the shortest, well, it's very, very short. Is it the shortest book in the Bible? I'm not sure, but it's a very short book. It doesn't even take up a full page. In this book, there's, when I read this, there's almost an element of comedy about it. There, there really, really is. It's Paul writing to the church in Colossae again, and he's writing to a man called Philemon. And he's dealing with some relational friction that's been going on there in the church. Now, Philemon was a really, really wealthy, wealthy religious leader at the time in the church. He was so wealthy that he had slaves in, his, in, in, what, it was, in what he was doing. He had slaves who lived in his home, and he was, he was just a rich, rich man. But Paul writes to him, and he says this. We're going to read just from verse 4 down a little bit. And you can read with me and just try and enjoy this, because whenever I was reading it, it honestly made me laugh. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers, because I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing that we have in Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the saints. So that little section is Paul buttering Philemon up. He's buttering him up and he's, he's making him feel, you know, Philemon, you're a good lad, you're a good guy. But then we get to the next little section, Paul's plea for Onesimus. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I appeal to you on the basis of love. Have you ever had that? Have you ever had someone say, listen, I can make you do what I want you to do, but I'm not going to make you do it because I know if I make you do it, then you might feel bad. So I'm just going to let you do it before I ask you to do it. Have you ever had that kind of thing go on? I then as Paul, an old man, and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. 
I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. And this is great as well. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do will be spontaneous and not forced. Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dearer to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has done any wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand, and I will pay it back. Not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit, benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. And again, this bit was super. Confident of your obedience, I write, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I ask. He's saying, I know that you're going to go above and beyond what I'm asking of you here. Now, the story here is Onesimus was actually a slave of Philemon. And writers believe that actually Onesimus possibly took some money from Philemon and fled that life of being a slave and fled to the city of Rome for a new life a hope of a greater life there. But in the process, he's come, we don't know the, the full story, but he's come to meet Paul and the gospel has impacted his life in a big way. Now, Onesimus was a slave. There was nothing special about Onesimus. He wasn't in a position wherever he could influence others. He wasn't in a position of authority. He wasn't in a position to, to change the world or have his name in bright lights. But I wonder... If you said to Onesimus when he was a slave, you're going to have a book in the Bible, one of the 27 books in the New Testament, that is going to be pretty much about you. I wonder what he would have said. He said, nah, I'm just a slave. There's nothing that, that God's going to use me for in a big way there. Nothing special about my situation. He might use Philemon though, because Philemon's a bit of a big deal. He's a leader in the church, but I'm a slave. He's not going to use me. Look what it says in verse 11. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful to both you and to me. He was useless, but he has become useful. You see, Onesimus was being used to carry these letters back to the church in Colossae. He was being used to carry these letters that were of great, great importance. Not only was God using him for that, but he was also using him to speak into that relational friction and to speak into that culture of slavery as well. God was using his situation, using Onesimus' situation, for God's great story. Now guys, there's this. There is always an opportunity for God to use you to do something significant in his story. Always. No matter what, no matter how young or how old, there's always an opportunity. And I'll leave you with this question. Are you like Onesimus? Who maybe thought, I've got nothing to offer. I'm, I'm useless. I feel I, I'm too young. I can't really do anything for you, God. Maybe when I'm older, or maybe you're sitting here thinking, I'm kind of, I'm too old now. I'm going to leave that to the young bucks. Let them go out and 
and work hard for the gospel, work hard for the church and, and spread the word and, and to love God well. There's nothing about my situation that God can really use. But God doesn't work that way, guys. He can use you, the youngest. He can use you in your situation to do something great in his story. And he can use you, whoever is the oldest here. Don't count God out. Because he sees your situation and he can step right into that and use you for his great story. We're going to finish with that. And with that, we are going to bow our heads and pray. And I, th- I just want you to go away and think about those questions, guys. Are you like Onesimus? Are you like the boy or, or the, the, the crowd who might have thought, that's useless. Don't bother giving that to God. What do you have in your life that you could give over to God? Don't count it useless. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you see each and every one of us. Lord, we thank you for the situation that we find ourselves in. And we thank you that we can never count you out. Lord, that you step into each of our situations and you can use us for your great story. Father, we thank you for your great love, your love that was shown to us on the cross, Lord, where your son died for each and every one of us and rose again three days later. Lord, I pray that each and every boy and girl and man and woman in this room would know that love more and more. Lord, I pray, Lord, as we go out this evening, that you would be revealing to us how you would like to use us. What can we give you tonight, Lord? What can we give of ourselves that you can take and that you can use, no matter how small or how big? We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Let's just bow in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you have given us so much. And you've given us so freely. Lord, we thank you for your son on the cross. We thank you, Lord, for the love that you continue to pour out on us. Lord, while our hearts constantly rebel against you, Lord, you just continue to pour out your love on us. You continue to run after us, Lord. And so, Lord, I pray that just this evening, even for just now as we have given an offering, I pray that you would take that, Lord, and you would take what is on our hearts. You would take, Lord, just what is on our minds this evening and what we have to offer, and that you would use it for your great name. We ask this in your holy name. Amen.